1: Exodus chapter 11. We're going to go back to last week's passage, just to get a, a preview here, a, a, an answer of what God's going to do in Exodus chapter 11, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, "Yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And after her words, He will let you go from here. And when He lets you go, He will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. In verse 3, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Now, before that happens, God has some final instructions for the children of Abraham. Final instructions that will prepare them for their deliverance of Egypt and preparation to enter into the land of promise that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a new beginning. Some of the key themes that we're going to see in this passage, as you read it this week, I pray that you did, is salvation, judgment, substitution, memorials, consecration, and obedience. Scripture many times depicts salvation comes only through judgment. We see that with the flood, we see that with Exodus here, we'll see it in the exile, and we see it in the cross. So with that, let's now move to our passage that we read this week in chapter 12. I want to read the first six verses as we look at God provides salvation through judgment. Exodus chapter 12, starting with verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. Verse 4. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Father, this here is a very um, well-known passage of scripture. But we're going to see here a acceleration in the redemption plan. A pivot point, if you would say, In God's plan for the redemption of men. So let us read it carefully. Let us understand it through your Holy Spirit. And Father, let us speak words that are edifying that would build up. And Father, that you would prepare each mind and heart to listen attentively, expecting to receive from you. And Spirit, we pray that you would begin to cause us to respond, that we may glorify in our lives as we make decisions that onward our maturity. We praise the name of Christ. Amen. By the way, I want to encourage you for this series, you're really going to want to have your Bible with you. If you do not have a Bible, can you see me or Dustin? Because we have extra Bibles that we just want to give out. We're dying to give them to you. So if you need one, please let us know. We'd love to get one in your hands after the service. Well, I want to give you some observations, some things that you might have noticed as you went through it. In chapter 12, we read it's a new beginning as God institutes the beginning of the new year for the children of Abraham. The beginning of the religious calendar is the month of Abib. It would later be renamed Nisan after the exile. And it corresponds to our calendar as part of March and part of April. Their calendar is arranged to make the Passover meal a focal point of their worship. Just as we have a new year and, and our focal point of our new year is getting drunk and forgetting and making uber rich, well, they would have public worship. What do you know about that? They would actually get together and have a meal to worship. They were to set their minds on the right thing. When this, <laughs> in this is that unfair? If that's unfair, I apologize. But I, I think it's pretty, pretty, pretty good assumption. Some of you may need to come up forward now. We've, our altars are always open. Our elders will come and pray with you or condemn you, whichever may be needed. In this passage, we read that God is giving them instructions for the Passover meal. In chapter 12, I'm just going to give it says what animal to kill. It was to be a, a male of a, of a goat or of a lamb, one years old. They were to kill it at twilight, which is before the sun went down. They were to do what to do with the blood. They were to put it on the doorpost and over the doorpost. They were told how to cook it. It was to be roasted in one piece, not cooked up. All of it together, not, not uh, uh, gutting it in any form or fashion. They were told what to do with the leftovers. They were not to save it, as you and I do, but they were to burn it, whatever they didn't eat. They were told how to dress it, how to cook. It was to be roasted with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. That was what the meal was to be. And they were told they were to eat it in haste, ready to leave at a moment's notice for God is coming to judge. And then it says in there, he gave them the instructions of what the blood signified of why they were to do it, for God would pass over anyone with blood on the door. Now God instructs them as you're going with me in chapter 12, verse 26, that this meal would serve as a sign. He says, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So now only didn't even give instructions for the Passover meal, but another part of their religious beginning, religious restructuring, part of worship at the beginning of the year, was what we call the feast, or what they call the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. For if you go in chapter 12, verse 14, he was told they were to eat bread with no leaven, no yeast in it. In other words, it was not to rise. They were to move all the leaven yeast out of their homes. And they were to eat it for seven days from the beginning of the 14th day until the 21st. They were to eat nothing but the leavened bread and else what they have. And then they were to hold a holy assembly on the 14th day and on the 21st day they would get together for a holy assembly. Again, God instructs them in Exodus chapter 12, verse 17, that they shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your host out out of the land of Egypt. So it served a purpose. It's it's to signify something. They're they're benchmarks. They're like stone markers to remind them, living examples of what they're to remember. He says, therefore, you should observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And then the third instruction he gave them, was the consecration of the firstborn in chapter 13. They are to consecrate or set apart the firstborn males of both humans and animals. God declared that the firstborn male of human and animals belonged to him. They were to sacrifice the firstborn of all male animals except for the donkey. They could redeem the donkey by killing a lamb in its place. And for all the male sons, they were to redeem those male sons by killing a lamb in its place. So all these three signify something. And again, in Exodus chapter 13, if you're there with me in verse 14, he says, this consecration serves a purpose. For in verse 14, in verse chapter 13, and when in the time to come, your sons ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn man of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, both all the firstborn of my sons I redeemed. The Israelites were also instructed in Exodus 13, verse 10. That the Passover meal, the feast of the unleavened bread, shall be a statue that should be kept at its appointed time from year to year. We also, as we look in there, not only did he give him instructions, but we also learned in reading that passage that Israel left 430 years to the day they came into Egypt. Fulfilling the promise that God made to Israel in Genesis fifteen thirteen. We also read that the Egyptians were so glad to finally see them go that they willingly gave them gold, silver, and clothing, serving to fulfill the promise in Genesis 15, 14, that God would bring judgment on the nation, that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. In addition, Moses remarks in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38 that not only did the Israel come came out, but also a mixed multitude also went up with them, meaning that some who were not Hebrews joined in their departure, whether they were Egyptians or whether they were other Semite type slaves. Again, fulfilling God's promise in Genesis chapter 12, that I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These three events, the Passover meal, the feast of the unleavened and the consecration of the firstborn are going to serve as statues, as laws for the children of Israel forever. These three events serve as signs to future generations who will one day ask, what does this mean? The answer is simply going to be that God is a powerful, sovereign and faithful God. Moses tells them in Exodus 13 verse 3 that they shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlet between your eyes or for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. But how did, he fi- how did they find their salvation? They found their salvation through judgment, through death and redemption. It also points to a spiritual truth that points straight to Christ. One theologian notes that the sacrifice of the animal, the Passover meal, atones for the sins of the people. The blood smeared on the, door, on the doorpost uh, post purifies those who are within. God passes over them. And that the eating of the sacrificial meal consecrates those who consume it. It's a shadow of what Christ accomplished on the cross Now what I'd like to do is move from these observations that are interesting and move to three truths that are found in our passage. The first truth is that disobedience to God's word always leads to judgment and death. I think we just need to pause there for a moment and consider that point. Disobedience to God's word always leads to judgment and death. Last week we learned how Pharaoh hardened his heart seven times while God hardened his heart five. Gardened Pharaoh's heart. Hardened Pharaoh's heart, not garden. I, I can't say it. So God gardened Pharaoh's heart by hardening it. Let's do that. You're going to have a fun one this one, Tony. Moses records at the end of chapter 11 that he and Aaron did all the wonders and the miracles that God had told them to do before Pharaoh. Yet Pharaoh would not repent of his pride and obey the command of God to let the Hebrew children go. This disobedience leads to last and final judgment against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. Let's read that final plague. I'll read out loud if you can just follow with me silently in your Bibles. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 29 Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. At the hand of Yahweh, death came into the land of Egypt. The firstborn son of every person was killed. The destroyer was indiscriminate in the charge of his duties that night as the firstborn son of the high and mighty were killed along with those in low places. Not even the animals were safe from his avenging hand. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Judgment and death comes to those who rebel against the almighty uh, Almighty God, as scripture warns, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Pharaoh and the Egyptians faced the full wrath of God as they learned that disobedience comes at a very high, severe cost. Those who killed the sons of Israel lost their own sons at the hand of God. In panic and fear, Scripture records in Exodus chapter 12 verse 33 that the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said, we shall all be dead. The children of Israel find their freedom through this sad, tragic event. But yet we also see in Scripture that it was not just the Egyptians that were in danger of God's judgment and of death, But also the Israelites themselves were in danger of this plague. Which is interesting because for most of the plagues they were immune from the previous judgments. Yet we read that they too were under judgment. Though it's not found in this immediate passage. We learn that while in Egypt the children of Abraham had adopted the gods of Egypt as their own. And they began to worship and serve them. If you were to look back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, we read that one of the targets of God's judgment were the gods of Egypt. Look at verse 12. For God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. But look at the next phrase. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. They too, along with the Egyptians, were guilty of idolatry of worshiping idols and false gods. A good, reliable witness of this fact of what I'm sharing with you is that they too were in danger was a young man named Joshua. Joshua was one of the original Hebrew children that found escape that night and were miraculously saved from God's judgment. He also served as assistant to Moses during those 40 years of wandering in the desert, serving as one of his generals. And after Moses' death, he assumed the leadership over the 12 tribes and wound up leading them to conquer the promised land. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, you don't have to turn there. He charged the Israelites at the end of his life. He wrote this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Good point, obviously. But listen to what else he says. He says, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river, speaking of the river, and, and in Egypt served the Lord. Now he's speaking of Abraham and his father, the river, the river Euphrates. Put away the gods that Abraham and his forefathers, and also put away the gods that your fathers in Egypt served. Many years later, while exiled in Babylon, the prophet Ezekiel would write these words of Yahweh when he says, one, that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, this is God speaking Yahweh, he says, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, but they would not listen. The Israelites themselves were idol worshipers. And as we go through Exodus, you'll see that they continually served him. As they go on, Israel will continue to rebel and grab onto the gods of those around him. You see, we see a Yahweh, a holy God, one who demands worship and honor and glory and he judges harshly those who rebel against his ruling hand even his own chosen children however he's also a living or excuse me a loving he is living but he's also a loving merciful gracious God who provides for his children so they too were under the judgment of the destroyer that night which leads us to point number two Not only is he a holy God who judges, but he's also a loving God who provides a way of escape and salvation for his children. God provides a way of escape and salvation for his children. Several days before sending the destroyer, God warns Moses and gives him instructions on how to prepare themselves for the day of judgment. In doing so, he provides a way of escape leading to their salvation and deliverance from slavery. Turn back, I don't know where we might be at this point, but Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb." Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin and touch the the, lintel above the door of the house and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Stay in. Do not go out. No matter what you hear, do not go outside. Do not open and peek out. (coughs) For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doors, two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. A destroyer moves his way through Egypt. He goes through the land of Goshen looking for the blood, seeking to whom he is to destroy and to judge and those he is to pass over. It was the innocent for the guilty. A little lamb for the life of those who worshipped the false gods. Instead of judgment that led to death, God providing blessing that leads to life. Moses records that there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Could you imagine? I could not. Yet they were safe. I can almost imagine them hugging their children, trying to cover their ears from the anguished cries of the parents who had lost their children. I can only imagine what this night was like. The darkness, the wail of the parents, but also a sense of relief and anticipation that freedom was near. Scripture tells us that God is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach of repentance, and that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Though his holiness demands justice, as we see in the fact that disobedience always leads to judgment and death, his love also demands mercy and grace that provides a way of escape and salvation for his children, which leads us to the third truth. That we understand from this passage. And that's obedience in faith is required to obtain the salvation. Obedience in faith is required to obtain this great salvation. Though God provided a path to escape from the destroyer. They had to follow Moses's. Or they had to follow through on Moses's instructions. They had to put the blood on the door. and And on the side. And they had to stay inside. To not follow those instructions would lead to death. Moses records in Exodus chapter twelve, verse fifty, as we continue through our story, that all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, by their hosts. Now, were there any Israelites that did not do that? I don't know. You know, we can leave that to the Cecil Demiles and the others. We don't know. Were there some Egyptians that followed it, saw what they were doing, did there? Could have been. That's all subjective. But what we see, that obedience in their faith was required. They had to follow through just to be an Israelite and not follow through in obedience and faith would have caused them to fall into judgment. But yet their faith in God's word and their obedience to Moses' instructions that they were to to be delivered from judgment. Again, God expects obedience from his children. Theologian Dane Ortland writes that obedience in carrying out the ritual is grounded in the grace of God's salvation and that God's grace is the fuel that drives the believer's obedience response. Could you imagine? Oh, kill a lamb, and by the way, put some blood on your door and, and you won't die. It sounds weird. It sounds strange. I mean, there's not a punch card. There's not an app on my phone that says, hey, this... It's blood and door. Who's going to do that? But yet, those who believed and trusted in God's word and followed the instructions were saved. Or as the Apostle James writes, that obedience is important. He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is what? Dead. And the writer of Hebrew observes that Moses, by faith, Kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So let's go back and look at those three again. I'm going to have to turn back here. Number one, we see that the spiritual truth is disobedience to God's word always leads to judgment and death. But yet, God in His love and mercy provides a way of escape and salvation for His children. Yet, obedience and faith is required to obtain this great salvation. In review, we read, we learn that God's justice and holiness demands that God executes judgment on the guilty Pharaoh and the Egyptians had to pay a price. And that cost of disobedience is severe. It is death. We learned this with our first parents, uh, Adam and Eve, in which a lamb had to be killed or an animal had to be killed for them. Love, grace, and mercy, though, demands that God provide salvation from judgment for his children. But yet also faithfulness demands that God fulfill his promise of not only delivering them from Egypt, but also leading them into the promised land. Yet Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and the children of Israel are not the only ones who have disobeyed God's command. Scripture tells us that God has declared that each and every one of us are guilty. For Scripture says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because of that, God has sentenced us, the guilty, to death. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But yet the free gift of God is eternal life. What we see in this picture is a wonderful display of God's justice and love. One theologian remarks that the Passover festival accomplishes Israel's redemption through the offering of the sacrificial substitute, that spotless lamb. In other words, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb is is the clearest picture of the gospel. Judgment is certain, escape, salvation is provided, and faith and obedience is required. The Passover meal and the regular, regular and annual sacrifices of the children of Israel were just temporary solutions, though, to deal with our sin, salvation, and redemption. For Jesus ultimately will fulfill all the requirements to accomplish and secure our redemption. What you and I find is a picture that was going to be the focal point of the year to, to set their mind on the right thing of God's judgment and God's redemption and the fact that something had to die for that payment. And what we see through scripture is that Jesus is that wonderful picture and the fulfillment Of that Passover lamb. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the one who provides all that God requires for the salvation of his children. John the Baptist testifies that when he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5 7, the Apostle Paul writes that Christ is our Passover lamb and he has been sacrificed. Again, in Ephesians 1.7, it says, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. If you would look here on the screen on the monitors, the writer of Hebrew teaches us that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, And exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Peter, in his first letter that we looked at several months ago, writes of Jesus knowing that you were ransomed from this futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things as silver and gold, but you and I have been purchased and ransomed and redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And finally, the angel of heaven tells the apostle John that we read earlier, that Jesus, the one who is worthy to take up the scroll and opens its seals, for he was slain, and it was by his blood he ransomed the people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, in the Old Testament it was prophesied that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, and that upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we would be healed. It would go on to say that Jesus, the or Messiah, who's the Christ, would be oppressed. He was afflicted, and he opened up his mouth. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth, and that his soul makes an offering for our guilts. In the New Testament, Jesus himself would use the Passover meal as a way of explaining his impending death to his followers in Luke. In many ways, Jesus' death was like the Passover lamb. Jesus' death occurred on the pass during the Passover festival, according to the Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The lamb was to be swain, to be slain to be slain at twilight before sunset. The Jewish historian of the fifth century wrote that it was customary to sacrifice the lamb at three o'clock. That was the very time that Jesus died, three p.m. Jerusalem local time. No bones of the lamb were to be broken, Moses said. and The gospel tells us specifically that none of the bones of Jesus were broken. So what we see in Exodus is God providing an escape, but he's providing a shadow, a type of one who would come and do that for the world. For what was temporary has now become permanent. Jesus is that Passover lamb. And as we read the Exodus story, it is a great escape. But there is one of a greater escape. For this is those for just the Jews who had put the blood on, but now we have a blood that passes over much more. One that's not made with human hands, but one that's made by the very hands of God. Now for us today, because I want to bring it together. This passage teaches us, though, of a great truth. And this is the truth that you and I need to understand. And I'm going to call it the doctrine of substitution. The doctrine of substitution. This doctrine teaches that God fulfills his requirement for justice and demonstrates his love by pouring his wrath that was rightly deserved for you and I onto an innocent party that pays the penalty of our sin. It's demonstrated with Adam and Eve when God kills an animal to clothe them. It is displayed when God accepts a ram instead of Isaac, uh, Abraham's son to be sacrificed. It is shown through Israel's history as the priests would sacrifice animals for the sins of the people, but again, these were just temporary solutions and only pointed to the greater sacrifice, Jesus the Messiah. Hebrews 9, 22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. God is justice. He is holy and he demands justice. Judgment must be passed on. But yet in his love and his mercy, he's given us his grace. Would you take your Bibles, if you would, real quickly and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, we've given you portions of this passage. Very familiar, speaks of the Messiah. Jesus would show himself to be the Messiah in the New Testament. So turn to Isaiah 53, verse 4. Here the Old Testament prophet writes that the Messiah. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. For he is pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I don't think I need to spend much more time convincing you that you were born in sin. And that you are guilty. And that each and every one of us are are worthy, God is worthy to declare that we are guilty and to be judged. Yet God has redeemed us, his children. Not because of something what we've done, but because of him. But as we look at this doctrine of substitution, we have to realize that you and I do not have to kill lambs each and every day or even once a year to atone for our sins. Jesus, by coming as the Messiah and presenting himself, as that Passover lamb has accomplished all that God has required. And so I want to give you four things very quickly as we come very quickly to a close. It's here on the monitor. I want to show you as our substitute, Jesus' sacrifice has accomplished something that's important for you and I in our lives. We need to recognize this as we work and grow in our maturity. Is number one, that Jesus' sacrifice bought our redemption He says he came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you and I. It has bought our redemption. There is no longer any penalty against us. There is no longer any wrath that you and I have to incur. When you and I sin and disobey God, even today, he gives us his love. And there is no mixture of wrath in that love. It's hard for you and I to comprehend that because our own fathers and mothers cannot do that. But we have one that bought our redemption. There is no longer any condemnation. There is no longer any penalty. And we are to remember that. And that should help us to grow and find strength and trust. Number two, we see that his sacrifice paid the penalty of our sin. In the same way he appeared for once all for the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Not only do are we redeemed and bought, but he's paid that penalty. No longer do we have to worry about facing a judgeful, wrathful God. He tells us now that we can now enter into the throne room boldly before an Almighty God, the Yahweh, and come before him. But not only that is God Jesus' sacrifice satisfied, number three, God's wrath against our rebellion. And this is so important. And this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word, that propitiation. But I need you to understand this this phrase, because as a substitute, he was a penal substitute. In other words, he paid our penalty, but yet in paying our penalty, he did something even more wonderful. And you and I can understand this very simply. When someone does something wrong to us, they offend us, they they have a grudge against us, we come and we forgive them, right? But yet even in our forgiving of someone, we always have the sense which we still have something bad in our mind about them. We may say, well, I'm not going to fully trust them. Again, you understand what I'm saying? You, You and I can forgive, but what do we struggle doing? Forgetting. And that not being able to forget always taints the way that we see people because we're still sinful in that way. But yet this is what Christ did as satisfying God's wrath. What he did is now the Bible says God never thinks of us as evil any longer. He is never bringing our rebellion against us. In other words, it's not only fulfilled the penalty, but it satisfied the debt against us and he looks at us with love and with joy and he comes to us running even when we uh, sin when we come and confess and repent he is more than willing to come and embrace us I think so many times Christians are struggling in their spiritual maturity because you think God is still mad at you I face that something happens in your life Suffering, maybe some financial problems, and all of a sudden we think, What did I do to God? Why is God still mad at me? That's not God. God considers you. God looks at you and He says, There's no longer any condemnation to those of Christ. So let me share with you if you're in life and you're struggling, as many of us will. Never, ever think that if you truly are a Christ follower, that God is angry with you, that God is mad at you, and God is waiting to throw down the hammer. For Jesus, who is our substitute, has made all things right, which brings us to the next one. For Jesus' sacrifice has brought reconciliation with God. For the Apostle Paul says this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. See, God has adopted us into his family. And for us, he is not the wrathful, judging God, but a loving, merciful father who's adopted us as his own children and has many treasures and wonderful gifts to give us we must recognize that no longer do we need something to pay for our sin and our rebellion, but that Jesus as our Passover lamb has accomplished that. You know, there's a wonderful hymn. It's called, When I See the Blood. I don't know if any of you remember it. I won't sing it for you. I'll, I'll spare you that. But if I can just read just a few things. It says, Christ our Redeemer died on the cross, died for the sinner, paid all his dues, Sprinkle your soul with the blood of the lamb and I will pass, I will pass over you. Chief of the sinners, Jesus will save as he has promised that he will do. Wash in the fountain opened for sin and I will pass, I will pass over you. Judgment is coming, all will be there, each one receiving justly his due. Hide in the saving, sin cleansing blood And I will pass, I will pass over you. I love this last line. Oh, great compassion, oh, boundless love. Oh, loving kindness, faithful and true. Find peace and shelter under the blood. And I will pass, I will pass over you. As God said, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. I pray that each and every one of you here this morning the spirit of God comes through that he passes over because he sees that you're covered by the blood of Christ if not would you come today Christ has made the sacrifice but you must respond in faith in obedience in repentance and turning and trusting in him would you do so today that may be the very thing that's keeping you from the joy of our loving father would you come this morning? If you're here and you have, and Christ has passed over you, I would pray today that you would let that truth just help you grow in maturity. That with boldness, you will open the door, walk out, and follow him to the land that he's t- calling us to. That we'd grab our honor and our armor and follow him as ambassadors of Christ, fulfilling the commission. For there's many others that need to hear the gospel. Do not let Satan tell you that God is angry with you, that he's still looking to judge you, for God does not, but loves you with a love and a grace that you and I could not even fathom. Wherever you may be in your life, you may be one whose spiritual maturity has come to the point that you trust him and you love him. Would you continue to do so? And would you share with others the wonderful mystery or mystery of reconciliation, ministry of reconciliation? that God has sent a substitute to pay the penalty that he requires for those that have disobeyed him. With every eyes closed, every head bowed, would we just take a moment to pause for what was said here this morning? Would you consider the lamb who died for you, the fact that God will judge the living and the dead, our family members, those we love and care for, our friends, our favorite waitress, the one who waits for us at the store. Will God see the blood and pass over them? Are they just waiting to hear the gospel message from you? Would you pray and say, Father, Spirit, help me understand what I should be doing today. Would you respond to the Spirit's call in your life? Do not neglect such great salvation, but fulfill that which God has called us to do in faith and obedience. Father, when we ask these things. Make us sufficient. We thank you that you sent your wonderful Son, Lord, to be the substitute for us. Father, that we no longer have to pay for our own sins by killing a lamb, an innocent lamb, Father, but in your innocent Son, once and for all, that debt has been paid. And Father, may our lives and our minds and our hearts be comforted. May give us strength and boldness and the courage that we need. Continue to live as ambassadors as we fulfill the commission you've given us. We praise the name of your Son. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkininfaith at orangefilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing your review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.